and he is worthy of our worship. Amen. Would you please be seated? Let's go to the Lord in, in prayer. Lord, you are like no other. Lord, how we long for the day that we can worship before you. God, how awesome it will be to worship and join the angels that are worshiping you, to see you face to face. Lord, help us to worship today. Lord, in your word and in song and in prayer, oh God, help us. God, we pray for um, so many needs. Lord, we pray for the gathering uh, in her mission right now that you would help her. Lord, we pray for um, not just us, but other churches. Lord, we lift up Appalachian Church this morning that you'd be with them here in our community. God, that you would um, uh, make yourself known to them, that you would work in and through their ministry here in this county. So, Lord, we just thank you for how you're working in other churches. We recognize we're not alone. Lord, we pray for um, other churches within our network. Lord, we lift up Grace Reformed Baptist Church in Pine Bush, New York, that you would be with them this morning as they worship and gather uh, together. Lord, we um, ask that you would help them, uh, Lord, in all their ministry and missions endeavors. God, we realize that there are many around the world that are being persecuted for their faith, and so we do not uh, fail to pray for them this morning. We lift up Burma to you this morning. We know that there's uh, all kinds of war and ethnic cleansing going on in that country, uh, Lord, that you would be with them, and Lord, that you would encourage uh, believers there as they face uh, real persecution and even death for standing for you. We pray that you would give them strength, O oh God, that you would help them to stand fast on your word, and Lord, that you would give them the strength that only you can give. God, we pray for unreached people groups that the gospel has yet not made it to, and we ask that you would be with them. We lift up the Berber people of uh, Libya, Lord, in North Africa, that you would bring the gospel to them. Lord, we know that the gospel has been there before uh, in the early days of, of your uh, gospel spreading, and Lord, would you return it there, and uh, Lord, that your gospel would be made known, that you would draw many to yourself. God, we lift up troublesome spots around the globe that are certainly on our mind. We think about the war in Ukraine and the uh, great turmoil that it's brought to that area of the world. We lift up both Ukrainians and Russians, Lord, that you would uh, draw them to yourself, that you would bring an end to this conflict as you see fit. And yet we know, Lord, that you told us that there would be wars and rumors of wars, and you are accomplishing your sovereign plan. But God, would you give your church strength in both, both places to minister to those who are torn through uh, this war, that God, you would give wisdom to uh, our country and other countries, Lord, um, that uh, if they have done wrong in even these ways that they are supporting or not supporting this war, that Lord, you would uh, bring those things into subjection to you and your will uh, in this time. Father, we lift up those uh, that are in desperate situations in Turkey and Syria because of the earthquakes and even hearing of, of more um, aftershocks. Oh, God, would you provide for these folks? Would you give them what is necessary for the body, but also that the gospel would spread and that you would be with many who are in their grief as 
Over 40,000 people have, have lost their lives through this earthquake. It's devastating to hear of, Lord. And even though we're a world away, we ask that you would help us to pray for them. Lord, we ask that you would bless the offering today as we take that up for their relief as the Janigans um, are there and uh, seeking to spread your gospel, but also meet the needs uh, of people. And so as they share a bowl of soup with them, Lord, may they also be able to share the gospel to meet the needs of the body, but also of their deadness without you. And so, Father, um, we know that in this uh, time of response that it's easy to think about people's physical needs, but uh, we know that uh, a, a worse thing is ahead if they uh, do not turn to you and find grace to help in time of need. So we lift them to you. Lord, we lift up refugees around the world in all these and various uh, circumstances that um, they have been uh, displaced by war that you would provide for them and that they might hear the gospel. Lord, we uh, pray for those that are sick. Um, we pray for um, uh, Lloyd's father as he continues to heal uh, from COVID. And uh, Lord, that you would give grace to him. We pray for others who are sick. Um, uh, Timmy and Jack, that you'd be with them this morning as they are um, uh, sick. And Lord, others that are, are not feeling well. Lord, we pray for those who are grieving continually of, of the loss of loved ones, that you would be with them. Lord, for our expectant mothers, that you would be with them. We thank you for all the uh, expectant babies this year in 2023. We pray that you would strengthen these mothers and, and give them uh, grace, Lord, that their uh, pregnancies would be healthy and they would have healthy deliveries. Lord, we thank you for children and the blessing that they are. Lord, we continue to lift up uh, Tommy and Angela's daughter, Becca, Lord, as she continues to wait on uh, just what, what's going on with her. And we pray for your healing there and for wisdom uh, for all the doctors involved. Lord, we lift up uh, our church plant down in Wilkes uh, County in, uh, for Christ alone. Lord, that you'd be with them as they meet this morning. Uh, Lord, thank you for giving birth to this new congregation. We ask that you would be lifted up and glorified in and through uh, that church. Father, we pray for Pastor Tim, that you would be with him and give him strength uh, as he leads this small church. Lord, thank you for those that um, may be visiting, and Lord, just, just encourage them, Lord, and, and grow that uh, work for your glory. Lord, we pray, too, that you would provide for them as they seek to enter this new building uh, that they're renting uh, for Easter Sunday, starting on Easter Sunday, Lord, that you would help them with all of the things that they need uh, for uh, just renovations of this small building um, in preparation for that. So give them wisdom, we pray. Lord, as we look at your word this morning, would you bless as we seek to lift you up and um, understand your word. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 9, we'll read that in just a moment. I uh, wanted to uh, get back to uh, answering some of the children's questions like I promised last week. And one of the ones that I want to address was a really good question that maybe some of you have been asking and the question was this, if, uh, if Noah was sacrificing the animals, how would there be left any to reproduce? And we're actually going to discuss that this morning. So that's a great question, um, whoever wrote that, uh, for the joy that was uh, Noah's to offer sacrifice. We know from chapter 6, 7, and 8 that God had told them to set aside both clean and unclean animals. And so we know that some were set aside for sacrifice. 
because there was extra, uh, if you will. We also know that with the clean animals, there was so many uh, extra because not only would they reproduce after the flood, but also that would provide for food for Noah, which we'll also read about uh, today in our text. So very good question, and keep writing those uh, questions and putting them in the offering plate. And you adults are also welcome to ask questions. I know that some of you dis- d- disguise your questions as children's and throw them in the bulletin. Um, so uh, you're welcome to do that. But let's, um, let's look at Genesis chapter 9 this morning. Would you stand with me as we read verses 1 through 17 this morning? Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. This is the word of God. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea and into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require reckoning. For every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his, this, his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by the man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, being fruitful, Be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, for it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off from the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. And when the bow is in the clouds, I see it and I will remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of God. May he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Well, perhaps a familiar passage to you, but in the context of what we were looking at last week by way of review, that God desires um, to be glorified. We know that. We know that in the sense of uh, the uh, traditional confessions from the uh, Reformation on that we are called to worship him and to glorify him. And we looked at last week that that worship is the context of what was happening outside the ark as soon as Noah came out. We know that it was a response uh, as we looked at uh, to what true heartfelt 
response to uh, a salvific work of God. And we connected that to what it is in Christ for us. We also looked at how worship is appropriate in the context of covenant, that we see that throughout the scriptures, that God makes a covenant for us, and we'll look at that in Christ. But this morning, as we turn our attention to uh, Genesis 9, we see the pages turned, as it were, to looking to what will come after the ark. In fact, after catastrophe, we touched on this last week, what is it that happens when we seek to rebuild after catastrophe from a human perspective? And while no doubt those things were on Noah's mind, Noah ultimately turned to the Lord, which is what we all must do in times of crisis. In fact, it's at that humble place we are called to remain. So this morning, I want to look at five points uh, in this text. First of all, in the context of this covenant that we'll look at with Noah, there is blessing. There is blessing. We, we see that on the uh, end of verse 20 and 21 and 22 of uh, the last chapter that this worship feeds into, again, this blessing that Noah has and is upon him. Secondly, we're going to see how uh, creation has changed in the sense of it still being under the fall, but it being renewed, and how this affects the animal kingdom. And I uh, named this point of beasts and bloodshed in verses 2 through 6. And then in verse 7 and 10 through 10, he addresses what is very clear in the text as being the desire for them to grow and be fruitful and multiply. And again, this is a reiteration of the creation mandate from uh, earlier in Genesis. And so we'll look at that of babies and breeding. And then fourthly, we'll look at how he addresses this global flood that he swears that he would never do this again that he would never uh, have a future flood that would destroy all flesh. And we'll look at that. And then lastly, the sign of the covenant, which is the bow in the clouds. And we'll make application uh, in how this is prophetic towards um, Christ and our relationship with him. So let's look at that. Let's jump right in. Notice again from what we, where we left off last week that worship is in the context of covenant. And therefore, if worship is in the context of covenant, know here in verse 1, it says, and God blessed Noah. Notice that in verse 20 through 22, what Noah was doing, and now we see what God is doing. We looked at last week in verse 21 that this sacrifice of praise to God and burnt offering was pleasing to God. He was blessed by this, but Noah here, in the context of covenant, is blessed. Notice that this, he blessed Noah and his sons, and notice what he says to them. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, where have we heard that before? Well, in the context of Genesis, this was the call that even after the fall, God wanted uh, Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The creation mandate, remember, was to have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and the animals. Now, when we look at this, notice that it's in the context of blessing. That we look at the scriptures, and I think it's important to note here that not just in the covenant with Noah, but hereafter, let alone in all of life, God sees fruitfulness physical fruitfulness in both the animal kingdom and within the lives of his image bearers 
as good and healthy and glorifying to him. And so he's saying here in verse 1, he's calling them to do this. Now, this wasn't just a necessity to see the human race survive, which it was, but ultimately it was about obeying the Lord and seeing his fame spread throughout the world. We know this because when we look at the progress of redemption or this scarlet thread that we see from Genesis to the cross, that it was necessary that the image bearers would continue that Christ ultimately would come. Not to mention how the Lord continues this in our day. The blessing upon Noah and part of its blessing was physical blessing. That there would be fruitful and they would multiply. I want to make a cultural application here because often we hear today of false notions of overcrowding and we hear of false notions that children um, are a pain rather than a joy. And I think it's important here even in Noah's day that Noah was being blessed by God in these ways. Really in the context of all the Old Testament, even after the law of Moses, children were seen as a blessing. It is a fairly new idea, and I would say demonic idea, that looks at children as a problem. And you consider this in our culture. Now, I'm not getting here about people that are struggling to have children. I'm, not, I'm being very sensitive there. But ultimately, an overall philosophy of life that it's about us and not our progeny. That we aren't to think about the future. In fact, if you think about this in your own lives, you may know the names of your great-grandparents, let's say. But how much about them do you really know? In just a few short years, we also will join the dead. I know that's morbid, and it's, it's, uh, but it's sobering, and it's a reality. In fact, many of what, what, much of what we do will be forgotten. But what is it that God is concerned about? Well, there's a spiritual lesson here, not just in our physical reproducing, but ultimately that those God-fears like Noah would continue into the next generation. Noah was faithful in his generation. Hebrews tells us that by faith that Noah entered the ark and let alone built the ark, that his progeny might know and understand the graciousness of God, even in the context of this covenant. And so we, as believers, will return to this in a few moments, that we have a blessing in our covenant with Christ. And we'll discover that more in a few moments. But secondly, we don't just see this blessing. We see how it's affected, uh, how sin has affected, let alone the flood, has affected both man and beast. Look at verse 2. Notice he says, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, and upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all flesh, or all fish of the sea, rather, and into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. And from this fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. And then we see here in verse 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So let's look at this a little bit closer. 
what is it that he is saying between uh, about the beasts and ultimately about bloodshed because he, he mentions both man and beast here in verse 6, mainly focusing on the image of God and how that will uh, ultimately lead us into what we'll see in chapters from now, the law of Moses. Remember, Moses is the author here, and he's setting up how these things have been a standard since before uh, or after creation and definitely after the fall. And so notice here that he says in verse 3 that every moving thing will be given for food. And some of you are rejoicing that you can even smell sizzling bacon here. That, that food is given to us in this way. But notice there's also a great requirement in this. Is to understand from whom it comes from. Because notice in verse 2, there's this fear of you and dread that shall be upon every beast. Have you ever thought about that? How the fall changed things? You know, even in children's book, the books that, that can um, be... Uh, wrong in their illustrations, but it's very interesting that when you look at books about creation, you see Adam and Eve usually surrounded by a host of animals in the garden, and no doubt there was animals in the garden, and there was, uh, you know, uh, blossoming trees everywhere of, of species that may have dis been destroyed in the flood. It's otherworldly. In fact, when I went to um, visit uh, the works that uh, we are a part of down in Costa Rica, I was amazed that just a few hours' flight from here, everything seems like a different world. The fruit is different. The trees are different. The animals are different. It was just, it's like another world when you go to different parts of the world. To, there's similarities, but there's differences. But notice here that there's fear upon the created world. And this is because of sin. And we, we know this in the context of our our uh, daily lives, when you see uh, a bird, for instance, will, will flitter away when you go and approach them, let alone a deer or another animal, let alone how animals respond to humans in general. That he's saying here in verse 2 that things are going to be different because not just the fall, but even in this new world that is amongst them, it's not new in the sense of being free from sin. We know that it's very real, but everything is being new, made new, and, uh, and then again, they're reproducing. So notice it says, every beast, the end of verse 2, of the earth, and upon also the birds of the heavens, and upon all the things that creep on the ground, which would include uh, insects and all those things that we call exterminators for these days and all the fish of the sea. And so God is in authority all of, of, over all of these, but that the curse of sin still remains on creation. It affects the animal kingdom. We know that the new heavens and new earth, which we'll look at towards the end of the message today, is an expectation that we have, that all things will be made new. But then he gives the command here, at the end of verse 2, that it's into their hand that they are delivered. In other words, in a way, as we saw with the creation mandate, we are called as God's people, let alone as humans, to manage creation. And I want to give some, some helpful thoughts here because we, in our day, hear all about what we would hear as Mother Earth and all the things that would come out of a passage like this that we ought to do and to consider all the damage that we're doing to the earth, I think that's fair for us to consider. 
And without getting into the arguments of, a, of our day, whether greenhouse gases really are destroying and causing weather changes, or whether we truly uh, see that we ought to reverse course on the way that we uh, handle um, creation, it's important to note here that it is in the hand of mankind to manage resources. We are called to this. And so even an attitude that sometimes we could possibly have as believers ought to be corrected here. And that is that even though we know that all things will be, remade, will be made new, we know that we have a responsibility to care for and encourage and see that creation be uh, taken care of. Consider all the works of mankind over the last hundred years and the issue of uh, revitalization of, of species that are going extinct, for instance, the care that that takes, the energy, time, and money that takes to see uh, these species survive, let alone those that have perished due to sometimes neglect, but also natural extinction due to our changing and cursed world. In other words, even after the fall, we know that animals that would even have been in existence on the ark, no doubt, went extinct because of the world at that time. Now, we don't have that here in the scriptures, but, but um, Moses, writing here, encouraging us about what it is that Noah was, uh, his task was, it was to care for creation in such a way. In other words, his food here, notice, was his provision was going to come from the animal kingdom, let alone the, the plant world. And then secondly, we know that, uh, we know that these would, some of these would be used for the sacrificial system. So this was important that would ultimately be set up uh, years from this point. But he also gives instructions in verse 4, notice, that how they're to partake of the animal kingdom. He says, you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Notice this, this fact here, and Leviticus picks up on this as well, that life is in the blood. We know from a, uh, recent uh, scientific discoveries that DNA, or the very code of life, lies in the blood, both in animal, the animal kingdom and in God's image bearers, in Christ. And seeing this and seeing how the world operates, notice he says that these are going to be for them food, but they're to particularly pay attention to how they do this. That is, not to eat it with its blood. So why is this? Well, blood is um, not just symbolic, but it's the very foundation of what God is saying is life. And so Leviticus goes into this when he talks about the, the they talk about the uh, sacrificial system, and Moses gives great detail here. But notice how God connects this in verse 5, the same idea here, to the lifeblood that is required of both every man but also every uh, beast. So look at verse 5. It says, For your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. So you see that connection there? He's going from beast and now uh, developing this with a reckoning for the life of man. In other words, 
the way that we take life, we ought to give thought to. We need to think about this in the managing of creation, let alone how we are living our lives. And Noah was being schooled on this to consider life after the flood. How is this going to take place? How is he to care for these species that they might uh, come out of that? It's very interesting, as a side note here, uh, including what is in the lifeblood, if you consider uh, uh, procreation of not just humans, but also of the animal kingdom, how much DNA code was lost in the flood. You think about that for a moment. Possibly a billion people or more existed at the time of Noah's flood. A billion people. Most uh, scholars put the flood somewhere in the 2400 B.C. period of time. And so from the time of creation, not knowing exact dates, but humankind could have grown into the billions by that time. You know, many things developed over the course of centuries um, and that really uh, millennia or two before the flood. As we know from Genesis chapter 6, that violence had spread in the world, and then God brought his judgment. But think about that for a moment, how much DNA code had been destroyed through Noah's flood. In fact, what we see today, even to our present day, genetically came from the ark. You consider that for a moment. It's pretty an awesome thought. All those who are studying zoology, for instance, and those who are doing the, the best work in genetics today are really looking at a time capsule from what was spared by God through the ark. Of course, I am taking a literal interpretation of Noah and the ark, and I believe that is an appropriate interpretation here that Moses is getting at, because it's out of this that God establishes his covenant with Noah. So both responsibility to beast, but also responsibility and a reckoning that we have for how we treat God's image bearers, other believers, that we and other, other men, whether saved or unsaved, we are called to consider their lives, that life is precious before God. And therefore, the things that we set up, the things that rule us, the laws that we make, the things that govern us, ought to look to and respect this from the very foundation, which is life. And so, in looking at that, we see multiple things. And we'll come back to this as far as application when we look at this in the New Covenant, when we consider the New Testament. But look down now to verse uh, 7. He returns to his same encouragement of looking about how procreation will happen after this point. He says, and you, speaking of Noah and his sons, be fruitful and multiply. So in other words, if we look here in the Hebrew, you here is actually plural, y'all, if you will, is you all be fruitful and multiply and increase greatly on the earth and multiply it. In other words, the expectation that God has in saving Noah and his family is that they would be physical reproducers. And while we don't have this here in this text as far as an, an application to this, there is the expectation here, naturally speaking, that humans would multiply. And knowing that uh, some of you might be thinking, well, yeah, well, this is coming from a guy who's got eight kids. I get it. We, 
want you to understand here from this text that it is good in a context of a world where it's difficult to have a large family, in a context of a world that's not valuing life, in a world where people are seen as problems rather than blessings. I want to just encourage us from here, from the text, and it was for Noah's generation, that being fruitful and multiplying was God's expectation. And it was a good thing. Now notice it doesn't say that they should uh, limit that or control that in some way, but to multiply. There's a sense of fruitfulness. Just like a, a tree that, it, that bears fruit, it multiplies, it, it grows. All of God's creation speaks of multiplication. Again, we'll come back to this in our covenant in Christ because we know that God is growing his kingdom. He's seeking to multiply it. And so while the scriptures don't tell us details about this and how many we know from from Genesis how many children they had but it's interesting to note that there was the 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 line of that, that we follow in Genesis here was not blessed with large and large amounts of children most of these couples were only having a few and we don't know why that is the scriptures don't really tell us but it's interesting that perhaps this was because of genetic abnormalities after the fall. We don't know whether this was for other reasons, but I find it amazing that there wasn't a lot of recorded um, uh, large families. Even Noah himself only had three children, and these were born in his latter years. So it's interesting to think about. So in chapter, uh, uh, in verse 8 here of, of chapter 9, we see that this um, command comes forth, and then notice what God says. It says in verse 8, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. So this covenant is not just to those who are alive, but those who will come afterwards. And so this blessing is happening um, and is going to grow in a physical way, but he's establishing this in the context of covenant. Now, we know, we've studied this before, that covenant is important. It's an important concept in the scriptures. That God not only makes his will known, but he has relationship with mankind based on covenant. So he's making a covenant that is, if we say updated, from the time of Genesis chapter 3 that he had with Adam and Eve. And what is it now? Well, this covenant is based upon what God was going to do, just as all covenants are. And notice he says he establishes this covenant between him and all future offspring. And so he says further in verse 10 that part of this covenant includes creation. And with every living creature that is with you, birds and livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. In other words, God wanted to see the earth in one way restored even under the fall that Noah and all those that were in the ark would produce blessing for the future. And so his covenant is made known here in verse 10. And it continues into verse 11. So it's double in the sense of its physical blessing. But notice here in verse 11 that the, his covenant is established again also with the earth. So it's with the future progeny of the human race, but secondly, with the earth. Look at verse 11. 
He says, I establish my covenant with you, Noah and his progeny, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Now it's important here to look at this because many scholars of our present day uh, want to look at this passage as merely symbolic or not uh, literal. And I think we get into a lot of problems here when we uh, don't look at the scriptures as they're clearly laid out here. And this, it's this, that if he's simply meeting a local flood of some kind, then truly the Lord has lied. We saw just as, as, as recent history in 2001 when a tsunami swept 100,000 souls off the face of this earth in a matter of hours. It's devastating to see what floods do in our world. In fact, all over the world, um, even Pakistan is still recovering from a flood that happened last year by excessive rainfall and overflowing rivers that destroyed crops and are no doubt has left many uh, homeless. And so we understand that, that floods happen today. So what is it that God is promising? Well, he's simply promising that never again would he cut off the world as he did in that day, which seems very clear was a global flood. In fact, uh, as we saw weeks ago that when the earth was completely flooded, it filled over the mountaintops. A local flood could not do that. Thousands of feet into the air in less it was global. And I find this important for us to realize because the context of God's covenant would be different if this was a local flood. Think about that for a moment. Is he just simply saying in that area of what is now present-day Turkey on the Mount of Ararat that in that area there would no longer be a flood? Well, God is clearly making a covenant with all of creation that all of the earth would not be destroyed again in this way. And as many today have noted, and Christians that are in science realize that the fossil record that is pervasive around the world gives evidence to a global flood. In fact, how could multiple sea animals be found, uh, for instance, in high altitude areas like the mountains of Peru, unless there was truly a global flood? And I think it's important that if all scholars, both, uh, both Christians and non-Christians, secular scholars, would put this flood somewhere in the neighborhood of 2400 B.C., how interesting it is that this is fairly recent history. And yet we treat it as just a mere Bible story. Well, it's important to note, not just because of its, its happening, but also what happened because of it. How much can be learned in science and in our regular lives today from a passage like this that preaches that God is showing the signs of his covenant upon our world today. And we see this in not just the seasons, but how he cares for creation. And so in verse 12, God says, this now is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and all living creatures that are with you for all future generations. Again, we'll come back to this because we see this even in our covenant with Christ that all these things will be brought to a completion. And so we've seen this in the sense of his blessing. We've seen this in, uh, with beasts and bloodshed of the human race and babies and breeding 
and we see a ban against all future flooding on the earth or destroying his creation. But lastly, notice the sign of the covenant. Look at verse 13. It says that I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Notice that. The sign of the covenant, because it's, it's really a two-part covenant. It's with Noah, but also the earth. And the bow, the rainbow, is seen in the clouds. Now, many scholars today would look at this and say how silly it is that we would explain a cloud as a sign from God. And we either see this for what it is here in this text, uh, but from science we know that a bow is formed in the clouds simply acting, uh, water acting like a prism of the, uh, the light from the sun really going through the falling water from the earth or to the earth and reflecting in the clouds. Hence the bow and the, the curvature of the earth and the reflection of the rays of light and how they appear. And we can try to scientifically explain that but it's very interesting that what is led, what we're led to believe at this point of time, that the rain had not yet fallen upon the earth in such a way where the sun would be able to reflect in such ways to appear. This is the post-flood world. And God is saying that the sign of this covenant will be this bow in the clouds. And notice, it's not just for them to look at it. Notice who's looking at it in verse 14. And when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, verse 15, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. So you see those two parts of this covenant, both to creation and to man. And so he, notice, is bringing the clouds over the earth. Remember, we saw this um, in, at, the, at the end of chapter 8, that God is the one who is sovereign of crea over creation. He is the one that is working all these things by the word of his power. He is the one who spoke them into place and continues them in place. And so this sign of the covenant would be both to him and to all of creation. And so he says at the end of verse 15, the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh, which is what he promised. In verse 16 then, when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. When we consider God's faithfulness to his covenants, he himself looks on the sign of the covenant. And this isn't just a blessing in Noah's generation. We're going to come back to this here because we know that God still looks at the sign of his covenant with his people. And so then lastly, in verse 17, he says, God says to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. God has made it clear what his covenant is. He makes clear what uh, he's doing in that covenant for both man and beast. And then he gives a sign of that covenant for those who are on the earth. Now, remember, no, Moses is writing this, the very one who had a covenant that he made with God at Mount Sinai, and there are a lot of similarities here. 
the very much the, the similarities at Mount Sinai were blessing in the context of his people. We saw that in the sense of the sacrificial system being set up about man and beast, but also the bloodshed that, and, and laws that would uh, uh, deal with the shedding of blood for man and anger and murder and all these kinds of things. We also see that there was a blessing within the context of the, the uh, Mosaic Covenant about uh, the good of animals, but also how to treat um, livestock, let alone the increase of progeny in that covenant. And then fourthly, we see that there was a ban in, in other ways as far as the Mosaic Covenant, that this covenant was an update of what he had done through Noah's generation. And there was a sign of the covenant amongst God's people that we see in the Mosaic Covenant. But all this to say is what in the world does this have to, like reading this outside of a history lesson and understanding where this comes from, what does Moses really want us to understand from this text? Well, ultimately, as we see in every text of the scripture, it's ultimately about God. Scripture is God's revelation to mankind. We don't have to wonder about what God is thinking. We don't have to try to search for it in some other way. He has given it to us in writing. And we know that it's inspired of God. It's God breathed that holy men of God wrote it down over the course of 1,500 years. And they all, in amazing ways, agree. So what is it for us? Well, I think what helps us here is to see that our God is a covenant-making God. And how does this meet us here as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, turn over to Hebrews chapter 9. I want to look at five points of application before we close here this morning. And I want to do that uh, in several different passages. And I have some help for us to, to look at here. Go to Hebrews chapter 9. We, we walked through this um, a couple years ago, so if you want to go back and listen to these messages. They can be super helpful, especially in the context of covenant. But Hebrews chapter 9, the whole point of the author of Hebrews that he's making is that our covenant with Christ supersedes every covenant that has ever been made. And, and he establishes why. And it's interesting when we get here to uh, Hebrews 9 that he is talking about the redemption that we have through Christ, and not just because of who Christ is, but what Christ accomplished at the cross, that his blood was shed. Notice here in verse 15 of Hebrews chapter 9, it says this, therefore he, Christ, is a mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And that first covenant referring to the Mosaic covenant. Then he says, for where a will is involved, the death of one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God sprinkled for you. 
And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in, notice, worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And the author goes on to talk about these are earthly copies and shadows, if you will, of what has been. So what is it in the life and the story of Noah after the flood that speaks to us? Well, simply saying that while Noah found blessing in the eyes of God following the flood, so in the aftermath of the wrath of God being poured out on his son, we find nothing left of our sin, but what do we find? Blessing in Christ. He has established a covenant with us, and there's blessing that is flowing from that. In fact, there's progeny that's also flowing from that through uh, the sharing of the gospel, that there's spiritual children of God being raised up as people come to faith in Christ, that people are continually continuing to, to share the gospel in places that has never been preached, and people are believing that message and are proving to be the very children of God. And this gets exciting for us when we see this in the context of covenants throughout the scriptures. And we start to realize these are all shining a light to the very center of scripture, which is Christ himself. That he is our blessing. Secondly, we see that even with the restoration that would come in the fruitfulness that was growing in and after the flood in both the animal kingdom and the um, the, the human kingdom, we notice here that the restoration of all things to God were to be towards his praise. I think it's interesting here, a quote from C.S. Lewis on this very thought here. He says this uh, in his book, Miracles. He says, if we think that God came down from heaven to restore the status quo, we're mistaken. The whole miracle of the incarnation and subsequent death and bodily resurrection of Jesus doesn't simply reboot the story of Adam and Eve scarred in their sin. No, God is not merely mending, not simply restoring the status quo, but redeemed humanity is to be something more glorious than unfallen humanity would have been, more glorious than any unfallen race is. Well, what is he saying there? Well, Lewis is reminding us that Noah's world, there was probably somewhat of this, this expectation that God was going to renew all things, but Noah was not the one that was going to answer the very call to be the Messiah that Genesis 3 was calling for. That while he was restoring things in his day, it wasn't the full picture of what he was going to do. That God, in his sovereign plan, was going to bring Christ to the world as, as God incarnate, that he was going to be there amongst them, that he would die on the cross, that he would rise again and make this new covenant that would be an everlasting covenant and restore man to something even better than what Adam and Eve were experiencing. And so why is that important? Why am I making that point? Well, as Hebrews does, a relationship with Christ, a covenant in Christ, is better than every covenant that came before. It accomplishes more. It secured more. It's eternal in its context. It represents both God and man. And even Noah had something wanting. While all the evil had ceased for a moment, the sinfulness of man was still in their hearts and lives. We'll see in just a few verses here that Noah himself is getting drunk. And why is that? Well, we'll look at that. But we know that sin 
is still having its effect even in the post-flood world. They had not truly been saved in the eternal sense. But Noah, of course, found grace in the eyes of God. The human race, while God was redeeming them, certainly was pointing to something more that had to happen, which was eternal reconciliation to our God. We know that uh, we, we see here that, that even in the new creation, as, as we look forward to it, that God wants to produce spiritual babies in this sense. That this is why we share the gospel, that he brings up the children of God. We know this even in the context of our future state. We know that Jesus taught in, um, in Luke and also in Matthew where it's recorded that, that resurrection, in resurrection there will be no uh, marriage or given in marriage. As he talks to the Sadducees about this that didn't even believe in resurrection. And yet he's making his point here that even in the context of the new creation that there's no need for physical progeny but rather we will be seen as the angels of God in the sense of the lack of procreation. We know that angels don't procreate. We know that they don't, uh, they, they're before God constantly, night and day, but we are going to be like sons of the resurrection. What is, what is Jesus' point? Well, he's saying that it's, not, it's gonna be like a, a renewed heavens and earth, but it's gonna be different. There's so many things that are gonna be different. And yet, God is raising up a people for himself. Paul understood this. In his, a lot of his um, epistles writes that, that you are my children in Christ. He even says of Timothy, you are my son in the Lord. In other words, what is it that God is doing? Well, he's calling us to be fruitful and multiply, not in, just in physical ways, but in spiritual ways, that we would take the gospel to the nations, that we would have spiritual grandchildren, if, it, if you will. That we would continually see that Christ would be glorified in all these ways, in and through our generation. And so, there's reproduction. Healthy ministry is multiplying ministry. It doesn't end with us. Many scholars today say that Christianity is in crisis and one of the main reasons it's in crisis is we haven't taken our faith to the next generation. You think about that. It's, it's a three, by most scholars that, that study this, there's only a 3% chance of people over 18 responding to the gospel. I don't know if that's true or not, but it, it seems to be true in the sense of the, the, the act, action of, of evangelism taking place more with younger people. This is why we should be careful not to criticize things that are happening in our world, uh, even uh, what we're seeing at Asbury. If it's, if it's a work of God, praise God. It'll show in the lives of young people. This is a wonderful thing and what God is doing in people's lives. It's not our job to sit back and, and, and uh, just, just look at what God is doing in young people and expect it to be uh, straight in the sense of what we would think but rather what God is doing in uh, springing things into people's hearts that is great repentance, faith, and great encouragement in the gospel. And so think about these things and how they apply to our lives. But the last two applications I think we want to make here and see from the life of Noah post-flood is, fourthly, a destruction of what was 
used to have been his creation and now what is renewed. And how does this look for the people of God? Well, turn to uh, Revelation 21. I think it's important to see this same theme even in the hope that we have. While we are in Christ, we're very similar to Noah because we are not yet completely free from the presence of sin. Revelation 21, the prophecies of, uh, of uh, John here really are prophecies of Jesus about the future. Just, just look at these first eight verses of Revelation 21, the great hope that we have in not just in Christ, but seeing him fulfill this covenant that even he made to Noah. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Isn't it interesting in the context of the flood and the hope that came after that, even in our covenant with Christ, we have the hope of this kind of truth, that there will be a day future, that our faith will be realized, that we will be, as Noah longed for, free from sin. And notice the context of that. It's a renewed heaven and new earth. We know from what uh, Peter says of his prophecy that, that the earth, the elements will burn with fervent heat. But we know that it's not going to be fully consumed because we see here the language that he is making all things new. He is using that for his new creation that he will bring into being and restore all things. And notice there's physical differences on the new earth. There will be no sea, for instance. We know that the light is going to come from God himself. Uh, there will be no sun. Notice also in verse 4 the promise that he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death. There shall be no more mourning, no more crying, nor pain. These former things have passed away. Isn't this awesome to look at our joy that we will have one day in heaven, in the new heavens and new earth? And this is going to be our eternal dwelling. Why? Because of the covenant that he has made for us with Christ and in Christ. And ultimately, it's to his praise. But notice even at the end of this passage, it speaks a warning to those who are not looking to that hope. That they are lost in their sin and their depravity. And there's only one way 
to turn. And that's the same way Noah did. He believed God. How about you this morning? Are you believing God? Something far worse is coming upon the human race than the flood of Noah. And while it's devastating to look at and and read this in Genesis chapter 8 and 9, we know that the fires of hell are far more worse than a global flood. Why? Their death was only once, but a death that comes is, is eternal when it comes with fire, as we know a doctrine of hell teaches. And what is, the so, what is so important that we grasp from this? That God desires, just like he did in Noah's day, to free them through the ark, and they entered it by faith, even with mocking crowds. That God calls us to come to Christ. And so my question for you this morning is, what is keeping you from getting in that ark? Is it the opinions of men? Is it the fear of how God would change your life if you turned in faith and repentance to him? God is calling us that today is the day of salvation. He's calling you to himself. And so our final point here of application is concerning this sign of the covenant. And in Christ, we have great joy that Christ on the cross is all that we need to understand that Christ, in our covenant with Christ, it had to be through the shedding of his blood. Why? Because there's guilty parties. And that guilty party is us. It was Christ who had to die to reconcile us to the Father. He also had to die because of the holy justice of God that must be reckoned with. And so he was a mediator for God and he was also a mediator for man. And so the very true sense of the doctrine of justification is that Christ died both for the sake of God restoring, uh, being restored in his righteousness and justice and man being restored from his sin or, or saved from his sin. Not that God had something to be restored from, but rather the judgment had to come upon the just parties. And Christ was that party that took our place as a substitutionary atonement. What a joy it is to look at this, to realize that Christ and his death and resurrection are really the sign of the covenant that we have in Christ. We do this in the sense of baptism and communion. It's a, it's a picture that we have died and been made alive. There is new life in Christ. In communion, as Jesus taught us to take of the Lord's table and to realize that his body was broken for us and this cup is the new covenant in his blood. His blood was shed for you. This ought to be a blessing unto us to realize what graces we've found in relationship to our great God. And so may God work thanksgiving and faithfulness in and through your heart as you consider not just the covenant that God made with Noah, but what it preaches about a future covenant that Christ would make with his people, which you, church, are part of. Rejoice in Christ. And as we looked at last week, he is worthy of that worship. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for helping us through this passage. It's glorious to read about stories of old, but it hits home when we realize that this is the same God that is leading this generation of believers. When we see what was preached to Noah to see his faithfulness, to see his obedience, to see him trusting you day by day in the ins and outs of his life. And surely he was a sinful man, but he found grace in your eyes. Just as in this generation, you have plucked us from the fire and the flood, as it were, and you have called us to yourself to be a people, 
a sojourning people that are looking for a better kingdom, looking for a better place, looking for a place where there is no more tears, crying, or pain, that sin is no longer, um, we're no longer dead to it, but we're, we're delivered from its very presence. Lord, we long for that. We pray that you would work this in our hearts to be the kind of people that you have created us to be. Lord, I pray if there's one here this morning that has never turned to you in faith and repentance, that today would be that day, that they would see that this covenant-keeping God, this God that uh, may be seen as a God of just judgment is opening the doors wide for them to get on the ark and to be saved from coming judgment. Oh Lord, we ask that you would do that in the lives of any that are hearing this message, whether online or here this morning. Father, we pray that you would help us to treasure the covenant that we have in Christ, that it would cause us to have hearts that are overflowing in worship, but also to think much about the, uh, the call for us to take this gospel to the nations. So we pray that you would help us, Lord, that you would encourage us, and that you would apply this message in only ways that, that you can do. In Jesus' name, amen.